Food and Beverage Magazine Live, bringing food and beverage to life with your hosts, James Beard Award winner Jennifer English and Food and Beverage Magazine publisher Michael Politz. Featuring leaders in the hospitality, branded food and beverage, and CPG industries, many of whom are Jennifer and Michael's friends in the business. For an informal and informative conversation where friends in the business share the latest intel, ideas, and best practices. Live, juicy inside scoop from the tastemakers, newsmakers, bread bakers, drink shakers, spoon lickers, clam diggers, farms, foodies, and friends of the food and beverage magazine world. Here are your hosts, Jennifer English and Michael Politz. Hi, Jen. Hi, Jen. Oh, Jen, why is your bathroom like that? What's going on? I hear, I hear kickback. I'm having coffee. I hear feedback. Now it sounds better. How are you? I am really excited because, as you'll, first of all, we're not in the kitchen right now. Usually on Fridays, we go in the kitchen. But we have some really serious business uh, to talk about today. And we're going to talk about what's going on in the restaurant world because that's what we do. We're a food and beverage magazine, but you are the author of the Food and Beverage Magazine Guide to Restaurant Success. And we're going to talk about the fact that there are restaurant operators who are persevering. They're opening. There are hotel developers that have already made a decision to proceed with the projects they've already got in the pipeline. People are making business in the hospitality industry. Not that they don't need help. We do. But what this is about today is the restaurant world. And that, my friend, is where you come in. You are Mr. Restaurant. I am. Didn't you just I, write a great book? Let me, show you, <laughs> let me show you that again. That's true. I did write it. And it did sell out the first day on Amazon. So that yeah. must be something. So, somebody, so, must, I mean, somebody must have cared. Somebody right. must have cared. So two things that are happening today. Like if if I seem a little uh, a little nervous, it's because two of the most – two people I admire. That's not why. It's just we know it's gas. No. It's very it's exciting gas. to have – you have to go there. I always have to go there because this is, it sounds very boring. It sounds very, I'm bored already. I'm ready to go flip to the next channel. We, have, know, a, we have a living legend, a legend, a Hall of legend. Now, I'm talking about our first guest, the Hall of Famer. I know. Right? He, know. he agreed. I know. Right? I mean, if it wasn't for him, there would be no restaurant business in New York City. Well, listen. So right now in Washington, D.C., the Independent Restaurant Committee is doing a lot to try and get help for operators all over the country. But the first restaurant committee was NYC and Company's Restaurant Committee that started the first restaurant weeks that now have helped operators all over the country find ways to keep going, introduce new customers to their food and their hospitality, and most importantly, sustain them through difficult times. Who knows better than how to keep a restaurant going during difficult times than the NYC and Company Restaurant Committee Chairman himself, Tracy Neporin. How are you, my friend? Hello, Tracy Neporin. Hello, Jennifer. Hello, Michael. I'm speaking to you today from my office in New York City in Tribeca. Last time we spoke a few months ago, I was home in New Jersey, and we were all shut down at the time and uh, just opened up. Uh, Nobu's been opened up. 57 for a few weeks outdoor dining uh nobu downtown just opened last week 
uh, Tribeca Grill uh, just opened last week and Batard just opened uh, last night. So we're, we're, we're giving it a shot. You know, we basically have until October 31st to serve outdoors. Uh, they may extend those deadlines, but as a practical matter, it gets cold in New York and uh, nobody enjoys Thanksgiving sitting outside having a, a turkey uh, as the snow comes down. So, uh, you know, unless we can start serving indoors again at some point soon, we may have to shut down again, which is very scary and which nobody wants. Right. I actually had somebody uh, call me from the restaurant committee today and say, why don't we just unilaterally come up with a, 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 a proclamation that says as of September 8th or 10th or whatever the date was, uh, we're just going to reopen the restaurants. We're going to reopen and uh, we're going to take uh, all the safety measures that are necessary because we have a lot of protocols that we're following to open the doors every day. Uh, that we adhere to to keep things safe and sanitary. Uh, but as I explained, you know, we just, uh, in my opinion, you can't just unilaterally do that. I mean, there are rules and regulations and we're law abiding citizens and we uh, don't just make up, make it up as we go along. But obviously, no. nation is we'd like to reopen. Right. So, so take us there. First of all, uh, who's keeping you closed right now in New York City? And a lot of people will look to New York as an example of how to best practice their way through this thing. You know, what's interesting about that, Jennifer, is that in the early days of this, everybody said, ah, you know, New York, it's a permissive place. They have the problem. We don't have it anywhere else. It's their fault. You know, they did something wrong. New York, New Jersey, we had all the cases here. And we had a really tough situation because we were dealing with this for the first time. Like the hospitals, they didn't know which yeah. treatment were the best, you know, so we kind of, you know, the plasma treatments and remdesivir, all these things weren't necessarily apparent at the beginning. Now, the rest of the country is benefiting for some of the, as a result of some of the things that we went through in New York. And we were very disciplined for the most part. And we were able to knock this uh, curve down to the point where, you know, it's a functional area now. And our number of cases compared to other places like California, Texas, Florida, uh, Arizona. What are your numbers on a daily basis? Yeah, I mean, I think it's 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 really I don't know what they are exactly, but it's small. I know it uh, in New Jersey at the Holy Name Medical Center where my wife works. You know, they had a thousand people at one point. Now they're lucky if they have one or two cases. Of, and see, Arizona is still reporting a thousand to two thousand new cases a day. And and I think that there was a, a belief around the rest of the country that. This was a problem that was just unique to New York and New Jersey, and it really wasn't going to spread anywhere else. And remember, when I was on with you the last time, I said, I'm going to be like Paul Revere, and I'm going to ride through the streets saying, take this thing seriously. You know, yeah. do not put your guard down. Don't act like this is a big joke and you can get by and you're young and you're vigorous and all this other stuff. This thing is insidious and it doesn't stop at the boundaries of a state. There's no wall that can protect you. So, and you know, you know this personally because you had a touch of it. Yes. And, I, you know, it, I, honestly, you know, at least I didn't end up in the hospital, but I was sick as a dog. I had nine days of 102 plus temperatures. And believe me, you feel lousy. You feel like you want to die, you know. But uh, thank God I, I, I didn't get to the point. If I had ended up in the hospital, I'm pretty sure I would not have survived because it was so uh, depressing. You know, you can't be visited by anybody. Uh, the, the only things you see are people with masks hovering over you. It, it, it's just the whole thing was profoundly uh, uh, disturbing in, in every way, shape or form. So I take this thing extremely seriously. And I, you know, it, it took me really a month after I recovered to get to the point where I could go out of the house without feeling 
trepidation just to go to the store. I mean, every time I went to the store and somebody came within a couple of feet of me, I was freaking out. I really was. And, you know, they said, oh, you know, you had it, so you don't have to worry now. Well, now they're saying, yeah, just because you had it doesn't mean you're immune. It doesn't mean anything. Wow, that's got to be scary. Nobody knows. You know, you could get it again. Theoretically, if you get it again, it won't be as bad. But who knows? I think the, the, the part of it that's scary to me and it should be to other people is that the flu season is coming in the fall. And if you couple this with the normal flu, whatever it's going to be, um, we can have a very rugged uh, fall into winter season. So, you know, you, you, I want to listen to the healthcare professionals. I don't want to listen to the politicians who uh, give you a lot of wishful thinking because uh, they feel that electoral success is based on giving good news that isn't justified. Come back to the current timelines and stipulations about ordering. You had mentioned something about a date in October. You mentioned something about a date in September. How does such dates actually impact you as an operator and what do they actually mean? Well, I, I think that um, what's happened here and in New Jersey, like New Jersey was given permission to start uh, serving indoors. And then they saw a spike in other parts of the country and they withheld the order. So they brought yeah. it back for restaurants that had ordered food and everything and were staffing at a certain level. It was kind of a, a, a bucket of cold water on the head because it was like, okay, we made these moves with the best of intentions. And now you're telling us we can't proceed that way. You know, we are using uh, PPP money to help pay salaries and rent. Uh, all the other, the rest of the risk is ours, food and all the other things that you need. And, uh, you know, as a practical matter, I don't see that we're going to be profitable. I think our attitude about it is we're happy to be employing people. We want to get back to work and provide a service. And, uh, we, if we don't make money, you know, we're okay with that. We just don't want to lose money because uh, you know, what's the, what's the point of it? But if, if we break even, you know, and we can just keep functioning, that's fine. And if we can get to a point where we can serve a, a, a decent volume of guests, you know, when we open up indoors, whenever it's going to happen, it may be only 25 to 50% capacity. Um, you know, you know what it's like in the restaurant business. It's a dime on the dollar business at the best of times. In recent years, it's been less than that. So, you know, how do you make a profit unless you can do volume? That's been the beauty of Restaurant Week. We, while we had a low uh, cost of entry, uh, we were able to do volume. So, uh, a dime on the dollar is not a lot, but if you get a lot of dimes, then you're doing okay. So, this this is uncharted territory. Right. We're all uh, in the same boat essentially, um, and we just have to we have to play it as it lays. But uh, having said that, we want to maintain the best quality we can. We have to really be uh, very disciplined about uh, how we take care of health issues, because if somebody gets sick, you know, it could shut the whole thing down. You know, you can't spreading throughout your staff and then serve people. You just can't. do. It. So you but- talked about Nobu opening up and then sort of on a rolling basis, it sounds like you've opened your other places. So that suggests to me that when you opened Nobu back up, that you had enough of a, a positive reaction from your customers, the neighborhood, the community you serve, and the restaurant itself, your guests, your employees, to say, okay, let's do the next one. Um, they, talk a little bit about that. And then. Yeah, Nobu's a unique situation because it's such a strong brand and people love it so much and they support it. 
And we also, we had a physical space on 57th Street, which is under an overhang, so that it's protected to a good degree from the weather. Um, it's, it's, it's on a street where there's a, a fair amount of traffic. And, uh, you know, so it was, you know, obviously we can't serve indoors. So, you know, you're doing a fraction of your normal right. business. But, you know, you're doing certainly, um, they're generating uh, an amount that would be the envy of many restaurants. Downtown, yeah. we were a little slower to, to open because we didn't have as inviting a space that we could uh, use right away. But, uh, and also, you know, so many of the office buildings around these restaurants are really empty right now because people are working virtually away from uh, their offices. So, you know, New York, it's very strange. You know, but the traffic coming into work every day has still been pretty heavy coming in. I come in from New Jersey. Uh, but, uh, you know, just being around town, there are pockets where you, you look around and you say, where is everybody? Is this a movie set? What, what happened? But the reality is that, you know, so many businesses are closed and so many workers are not uh, in their offices. My son, uh, my younger son, Robert, uh, works for Uber Eats in, in a corporate uh, office, uh, capacity. And uh, they basically said, we want you to work from home uh, virtually. Uh, he went to the office to pick up some things, some, you know, some a chair and, you know, some other things that he needed from there. But uh, and they're moving their offices near the Trade Center next year. But they basically want you to work uh, virtually from home, I think, the next June. So that's the way they're operating. And a lot of businesses are doing that. And I think uh, it's going to be interesting to see a lot of companies, whether they come back to uh, a physical space or whether they do this more regularly. I mean, to me, I've always worked in an office. I don't relate to the other things. But the New York Daily News and several other newspapers that are owned by that company, they just announced that they're closing the newsrooms. That wow, going to have uh, the paper. People will work virtually and that's how they put the paper out. They don't need a newsroom anymore. And wow. you know, it, it just was astounding to me. You know, Pete Hamill just passed away. Yeah. Pete Hamill was such a strong uh, uh, personality here in New York and, you know, around the country and around the world. He was a brilliant guy. I had a chance to meet him uh, when they did a, a shoot at uh, Tribeca Grill once for Burt Wolf's program. Remember, there was a culinary program. Burt Wolf was the host. And I got a chance to speak to him quite a bit. I helped set the thing up. And he was such a nice guy. And so intelligent, you know, he looked at you with his eyes and, you know, you felt like, you know, you were the only person in the world. You know, he he's a guy who had, you knew a lot of people, he rubbed elbows with other celebrities, but when he was talking to you, you know, it was a one-on-one -on -one thing. And he wrote a lovely inscription in his book for me. And uh, I've always remembered that uh, it was 20 years ago this month and he just passed eight, five years old. Um, but, you know, he was a quintessential newspaper guy. So right. was Brad. Right who passed a couple of years ago. They did a documentary a few years ago about those two guys. And that's the, the old school. That's a bygone era that's now gone forever. You know, yeah. uh, newspapers as we know it are, are just disappearing. And I love the heft of a newspaper. I love getting a little newsprint on my fingers. It's just the way it is. You can do a lot of things with the phone and you can read a lot of articles. But to me, when it's in print, that gives it more validity. You know, hey, uh, Tracy Neporent is our guest calling in from Myriad Restaurant Group in New York City, chairman of NYC and Company's Restaurant Committee, and one of the guys pivotally important in representing the operators, large and small, all over, because the way that they do what they do is so essential to the communities in which they work and make their restaurants and hospitality come to life. They are the purveyors and cultivators of conviviality. Tracy, you opened the world-famous Tribeca Grill again 
last week. Talk about the decision to open or stay closed when you have such a world famous location such as Tribeca Grill and such a powerful brand as Nobu. What are the decisions that went into, do we stay shut for this or do we open back up? Talk a little bit about how that went. Well, I think, you know, my brother Drew and and, uh, our managing partner, Martin Shapiro, and Agnes Chow, the part everybody got put their head together and they said, you know, we 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 want to get open again. Now, obviously, August is not a very busy month in New York. A lot of people go away, but we had applied for uh, PPP assistance and we did get uh, that money and we wanted to put it to good use and bring people back to work. You know, it's fifth anniversary year at Tribeca Grill. So it's a momentous year uh, in our history. And, uh, you know, it was very painful to shut down in March when we had to. And all these people that have been loyal to us, so many employees who have been with us through the years were suddenly out of work. And so as soon as you can get people to come back, you want to do that. And I think we have something to offer. We have good food there. We have a good mentality of service. And, uh, you know, this is, as I said in The Godfather, this is the business we have chosen. So, hey, <laughs> now, are, are there are there any... Are there any indoor seating at any of your restaurants or is there a mix of indoor and outdoor seating? No, there's no there's no indoor seating. We have we have the loading docks at Tribeca Grill on Greenwich Street so we can seat people there. And now uh, along around the corner on on uh, Franklin Street, we have an overhang there so we were able to put uh, uh, tables there. So and and we put some nice festive lights out in the evening and so um you know, it's very ad hoc. You kind of just kind of go. A lot of restaurants are building these big platforms. They're spending twenty, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars sometimes building these very elaborate sets. Uh, and and to our thinking, it just doesn't make any sense for right. fifty to sixty days. You're going to be serving. I mean, you know, it, when it snows in New York uh, or when the winter gets nasty, you have to bring this stuff all in. You have to store it somewhere. And so. Has to be there has to be plowed, you know. We're in Batard, where we opened last night, you know, we'd gone shopping and we went around uh, the other day. I was up in Connecticut with Drew getting umbrellas and stuff, and then there was some discussion about whether the umbrellas were the best way to go. And you know, some people are put are putting uh, seating out into the street, not just the sidewalk. But we have a uh, the way the water kind of runs into the sewers and stuff. We get tend to get these big puddles in front of batards. You really can't put tables there. We're joking that we have tables on the sidewalk and we can see people say, would you like to have a water se- a seat, you know, a waterfront seating? You know, you can watch this lake wow. of, that, you know, we had big thunderstorms. So a nice big pool of water, you know, shows up there. So we're joking. You want lakefront seating? We can provide it. You know, it's just uh, that happened once before at City Field. We when it first opened. We had seating that looked out on the field and there was a big storm and the water started coming in through the glass windows. So we said, this is like the maid of the mist at uh, Niagara Falls. You know, one of the things that I keep imagining is I realize how unsustainable dining outside is in the northeastern part of the country where weather and other climate conditions are going to impact that severely. I mean, you really are looking at a finite opportunity and other things are going to get better and you're going to move back inside or what are you going to do is the question. And I can't help but think, as somebody who grew up in the taxi business, that uh, that every taxi could be your like virtual. Uh, <laughs> but but they're so uh, they're so grimy. Um, so could we get the cabs cleaned up enough that each of them could be like a little rolling restaurant pod? No. Yeah, you know uh, that's a thought. 
we're also, you know, we're normally a seven day a week restaurant. Right. right. Close, you know, maybe for a few of the major holidays, but uh, now we're open Tuesday through Saturday and we're just opening for dinner four to nine. So we're limiting our hours and, and, you know, that, that keeps the manpower at a reasonable level and staffing. And, um, and also, I mean, from a reasonable stand, realistic standpoint, how many people are we going to get during the day? It's hot. It's humid. Who wants to sit outside? You know, it's, right, it's right. you know, in places like Arizona and uh, Las Vegas, where you have year round dining and you have misters that you set up. I mean, you can amortize the cost over the, the entire year because it's a constant thing. But for us to open up for a few months to do this and then have to shut it down. I mean, how much are you going to invest to do that? And so, and and you were talking Batard opened uh, yesterday. Did that roll out similarly to the openings and reopenings of both the Nobu and the Tribeca Grill? Did I think? Did it, you feel like you got a little bit of expertise in reopening because of that? It, it it was helpful. It was helpful knowledge. The challenge we have there is that we have no overhang right now. We have to build something, so we have these umbrellas, which you know may or may not sustain us if it rains. But I'm not so confident that it will. Um, so it's not as natural a thing. We also have a much smaller space there and it's a very refined menu that we have there. And obviously we, we, you know, we're, we're serving a more limited menu and we're doing it at a lower cost. So there, there shouldn't be any, uh, any barrier to being able to dine there. Uh, we're not going to make cost an issue. The whole idea is to get people back into the habit of dining again and hopefully give people, you know, a, a couple of hours of peace and serenity yeah. and that we've all been experiencing. So your son uh, went to Cornell. Another Cornell grad is joining us now, one of the most influential women in the hospitality industry globally. Elizabeth Blau is the founder and president of Blau & Associates, one of the premier hospitality industry consulting firms in the country. Uh, she's based in Las Vegas, Nevada, where she and her husband, Kim Cantinwala, Chef Kim Cantinwala, uh, operate the Honey Salt Restaurants um, and in addition, uh, is a very uh, zealous and passionate advocate for independent operators and restaurateurs in general. And her lifelong passion for this industry uh, is allowing her to be um, vibrantly creative in this time when creative solutions, Tracy, it seems, are very important. Um, we are thrilled and honored to welcome back to the show, Elizabeth Blau. How are you? Hi. Hey, how are you? We're going to work on your camera. We're going to get you uh, back with us visually as well. I can't see you, but we'll work on that. Um, I want to throw the question to both of you. And while we're working on your camera, Elizabeth, I'm going to throw this question out. One of the things, Tracy, I've heard you say, and, and I've talked privately to Elizabeth about this as well, is how creative operators need to be to be dynamic and adaptive to the almost daily changing circumstances of this COVID moment. How much like regular operations is that? How, how creative do operators need to be in general? Were you always having to be this creative and we just didn't have um, COVID to blame for it? Was it always important to be this adaptive? Well, I think you have to respond to whatever's going on in your market at a particular point in time. I, you know, this is a very unusual circumstance. I don't think there's anything, there's no template. You know, we've been shut down for 9-11 and we've been shut down for Sandy and different calamities. But 
this is a whole new uh, because it's there's there's no end to it right now. We don't know when it's going to end. And there's all these protocols you have to go through to prepare to go to work every day, uh, putting on masks and cleaning surfaces and doing all the things that that just, you know, some of the things are kind of contrary to hospitality. Your right. smile can't see your smile. You know, your eyes have to kind of provide the uh, the smile. And uh, so, you know, I think that there's things that you have to change, but the principles of, of, of hospitality are always there. And that is to provide excellence, to do a good job, to be welcoming, to have high quality uh, ingredients that you serve on the plate and to have high standards. I mean, that never changes or goes out of style. I know, you know, I, I'm, I'm in awe to be on the same program as Elizabeth because she is so uh, dynamic and such a good representative of the industry yeah. and, and so uh, excellent in what they do. I think in Las Vegas, you know, you have to have a certain degree of flamboyance because it's really expected there. So everything is kind of larger than life and it's on a bigger scale. Uh, and all of that is wonderful, especially when it's backed up by excellence in the kitchen and on the plate. I think for, you know, a long time when it first started, maybe there were a lot of things in Las Vegas that were were, were grand, but maybe weren't as excellent as their original concept. Right. That certainly has changed dramatically through the years. And I think Elizabeth is an architect of a lot of right. the reasons. Right. Elizabeth. Well, thank, thank you. And, and good morning and sending you big hugs, Tracy. It's been long, way too long. I know. I know. Well, you know, Elizabeth and her husband were very gracious to us when my wife and I were in Las Vegas. I don't know. I might have been six, seven years ago. We had a wonderful uh, meal at Honey Salt. So. Uh, thank you. Well, I really agree with everything that Tracy says. I, I just have one um, correction, Tracy. Today it should be about 115, so there are no misters on the planet that can keep you cool outside. <laughs> yeah, so, okay. <laughs> so thank goodness that that uh, we're still able to um, to serve inside. Otherwise, pretty much the entire independent landscape here would be would be shut down because of the heat. Elizabeth, talk a little bit about. Uh, how creative and adaptive restaurateurs naturally need to be and how that might have served all of you during this period of COVID. Is that something that you learned, you know, in your early career? Is it something you learned at Cornell? Is it something that's just a, a natural part or a necessary part of being an operator? Well, as Tracy knows, it's de rigueur for us Cornellies to mention it, that we went to Cornell within at least a couple minutes of any um, conversation. So yes, definitely some of my incredible marketing classes at, at Cornell, um, you know, taught us that, that versatility. But, you know, as Tracy mentioned, there's, there's always some kind of, of, of crisis that we're, we're adapting to. Uh, but I completely agree with him. This was, you know, was unprecedented. So to have to have our guests return to Honey Salt when we could open to an empty bar and a half-filled dining room. I mean, it was so unattractive when we when we looked at it, which is, you know, why we came up with the, you know, the, the teddy bear idea. Um, you know, when we were closed um, and, and friends were calling me because they couldn't get flour or yeast or, or toilet paper, you know, never in my life did I think I would be selling cleaning supplies and toilet paper along with you know, the most amazing Castro Dragones tequila or, um, or monkey 47 gin. So right. um, it, it, it just, we, we had to turn on a dime. And for us, 
because we do so much delivery, um, it was easy for us to, to do secret burger and, and, and do these, um, you know, meals that you could pick up and, um, and, uh, and, and watch and cook along with us live stream. It's a, a very innovative company here called secretburger.com that we partnered with to do that, to turn some of our, our regular a la carte meals into to family style. That was all easy and, and natural for us, but there are so many restaurants, especially anybody in a finer dining category, that that the takeout model just doesn't work. Um, right. And so um, it's it's just been debilitating. But as Tracy said, half seating and 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 selling you know toilet paper and wine, it, it's it's keeping the lights on and it's keeping for us thirty five or forty people at work and, and their families, you know, being able to pay rent and, and buy groceries, nothing more than that. Um, our landlords are, are, are not, for the most part, being cooperative. Um, they're feeling entitled to 100% of, of, of their rent, um, which makes no sense because in a, in a time of, of crisis, um, you'd think your landlord should be partners and, and, and be working together so, you know, that we can stay alive, that we can stay afloat and we could keep people employed. Um, but um, not everybody's on the same program, sadly. That's, a, that's exactly right. I think, you know, here in New York, I mean, real estate is a big, big uh, component of uh, what it takes to operate. And uh, we always said that it, any kind of shutdown that you have, even for a short period of time, it's very disruptive because the. Uh, you know, you, you, you're paying these high rents and uh, if you have no income coming in, uh, you know, where does the money come from? And they, they want to be part of your success. They want to brag that they helped make you. But of course, when things go south, uh, then it's all your fault and it's all your problem. So it's and not, that's, and not, that's a consistent experience you're having in New York, that the landlords are not being as cooperative across the board. I won't say your specific landlords, but but are you finding that that's a, a common complaint right now for New York operators as well as the ones in Las Vegas? I think that's going to spell uh, the end of a lot of restaurants that haven't announced yet that they're closing. I mean, it gets to a certain point where, you know, you try to keep these things quiet. They doesn't have to necessarily play newspaper. But, um, you know, when some landlords, I think, uh, came up with different ways that they could kind of burr rents for a period of time for some people i know some big party spaces and people that operate them that are paying six figure rents every month and you know they've been closed for months now how do you make that up how do you make it up you know because there's no party business there's well and, and again that's not necessarily something that the ppp or the business interruption no. insurance is necessarily going to cover no that's right well, but in, and remember the ppp we're, we're going back to to march and april we, we're we're in august moving to september um so as tracy said it's just it's utterly devastating um and and there's there's no coming back and and for my colleagues in new york and california my heart goes out because they can't use their dining rooms i mean it's new york city look at what's going on in the streets um you know, there's there's a crisis with with the homeless population. There's a heat wave right now, so you know, dining you know outside is is a fraction, and um, so it just it's it's not a sustainable economic model anywhere. If there was something that either of you could say to the landlords who are in a position, because as we all know, landlords like operators themselves range from mom and pops all the way up to 
publicly traded corporations, um, some of whom can withstand and endure a bit of a financial uh, bit of pain, if you will, uh, more than others. It's a little probably tougher for the mom and pops. Can each of you address a message to the landlords um, ab about the realities that you're facing, especially the, the landlords who can well afford to be a little bit more cooperative and maybe and maybe take a little bit of the pain or share the pain, I should say. The one thing I would say is that, uh, you know, this is a problem that actually has existed from before the pandemic. I'll give you one clear example. Uh, Nobu downtown, which was Nobu, New York, which uh, opened in 1994 on the corner of Hudson and Franklin streets, right down the street from Tribeca Grill. Uh, we operated very successfully there. The landlord wanted to raise our rent, I think something like 40%, something like that. And it's a limited space. And we just said, no, that's not realistic. And we ended up moving out of there and we moved down to uh, a Broadway location in the financial district where we've done fine. The postscript to that story is that that space, which we vacated in March of 2017, is still empty. Wow. So think about how stupid uh, the landlord is in that case, because they had money coming in every month. Uh, you know, we were paying a reasonable rent. We would have paid a little bit more, but not 40% more. And, you know, apparently they felt, you know, it was better for them to, to hold out for the big deal. And here we are, you know, well over three years later and three and a half years later. So yeah. now, now no one could have predicted a pandemic, but nonetheless, I mean, it's kind of ridiculous when you think about it, but I don't really understand real estate. I, I think that, that, uh, You'd like to think that they want to be part of your success and they want to be helpful with you, but uh, they want to be part of your success when it shines on them. But when you have a problem, uh, they go away very quickly. Elizabeth, what would you say to the landlords out there? I know you've been talking about this, writing about this. I know you've been involved in this. We'll work on the sound there. Um, we're not able to hear you. Sorry. Oh, yes. Well, I was upside down and now I'm <laughs> right side up. <laughs> you look beautiful as always. Um, I think I would just prepare, prefer the teddy bear, Michael. Can I be back to the teddy bear picture? <laughs> um, I would say to the landlords, you're going to have a very difficult time filling hundreds of thousands of spaces that are empty yeah. when you have destroyed the dreams of small independent restaurants, families generational restaurants, um, you know, ethnic restaurants, um, immigrant families who've come in here with the American dream to open um, their restaurant, um, you will be crushed. And um, again, if we don't get federal and, and, and state aid, um, the PPP dollars are gone. Um, and, um, and so we need help and we need it immediately. It was very frustrating to see last night that talks between the political parties broke down. And I don't care whether you're red or blue or Democrat or Republican, work together to save the people in this country who have worked so hard to build their businesses, all businesses, not just restaurants. And um, we have to stop politicizing and we need to get emergency aid out quickly. Um, and again, evictions, um, some of the letters that I've seen my colleagues receive from, from utterly heartless landlords. Um, it's disgraceful. 
it's disgraceful in this this period of time. And again, when you've closed your doors and you're out of business, it's going to be too late um, to tell landlords, I told you so, because you're going to be closed and that generation of work and entire lifetime savings is going to be gone. And it's not like you can just clear out the restaurant and pack up your plates and go home. Some of the fixtures, the equipment, what it takes to open a restaurant is extensive. And if you can't afford to keep it in the location where it is, where are you going to go store a restaurant's worth of cookery and, and um, equipment and fryers and ovens? And I mean, the, the, the realities of this, the, the, the logistics of this are inconceivable. But that's just where we don't want to go. Let's yeah. talk about. What's so painful about this, Jennifer, is that, you know, the nature of our business is that we want to give people a hospitality hug, that we want to comfort people. In a time of need, restaurants can provide a wonderful service because people sit down with their family, their friends, their colleagues. They have a nice meal. They talk about the things that are disturbing them. They have a bit of wine. And when the meal is over, hopefully they have a better sense of well-being. This thing has basically taken away a lot of what we can do. We can serve less people. We have to keep people at arm's length. We can't hug anybody. We can metaphorically. Uh, we're wearing masks. We're doing a lot of things that are contrary to our normal way of doing things and our, the, the things that we have an instinct for. And so we have to kind of just work our way through it. But it's it, at a time when people really need what we do. Uh, it's getting harder and harder to provide it. And I think the politicians are just so out of touch with what's going on in the country. I mean, I, you see people lined up to get food from food banks. You see people sitting in cars for an hour and it stretches on for a mile. And you wonder, you know, these people are not, these are our, our fellow citizens. These are people, this is our country right now. And yet you have leadership that just says, oh, it's all going to just go away. Yeah, it, it will go away. We're all going to die eventually. Yeah. But meanwhile, while we're here, let's do something to improve the quality of life for everybody. Let's wake up. You know, there's plenty of money for a lot of things. But right now, we're in a desperate situation where people need help. And, and then, what, going forth is, well, you know, $600 a week is just it's just too much. People are just, you know, they're going out on their yachts with that extra $600. I mean, please. You know, I mean, well, we'll make it $400, but the states will pay 25%. And the states all need help, but we're not going to give it. We're not going to give them any help. So, I mean, this is just, it's maddening. It's just maddening. But there's a certain part that doesn't seem to care. I mean, they just they just keep marching on, along like lemmings. And, you know, it's just, it's just odd to me. Tracy, what's, fr what's frustrating to me is that... Um, you know, when we had the last financial crisis, we said um, uh, the banks were too big to fail. And, um, you know, there was a reality to that. But um, to me, the restaurants are too important to fail. And so when you think about it, almost everyone in America, their first job in anywhere is, is in a restaurant, whether it's fast food or scooping ice cream or, or bussing a table. You don't have to have a high school degree. You don't have to have a college degree. Uh, we welcome with open arms kids, you know, get their first job in the summer and in, 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 uh, in middle school or, or in high school. And um, there will be an entire gap in the, the workplace. And it's not just about 
um, you know, the first job. It's how you learn to be an adult. It's how you learn to show up on, on time. It's how you learn just basic values and, and, and skills that you take with you for the rest of your life. Because most of those people never end up staying in the restaurant industry. They go on to be lawyers or doctors or mechanics or anything else that they do. But there's a rite of passage in the restaurant industry that's going to be lost for forever. Um, and um, again, I, I, I see all kinds of articles and all kinds of people. There's wonderful organizations, Thomas Keller, Danielle Ballou of you know, are, are championing the business interruption insurance. The Independent Restaurant Coalition is trying to pull and lobby together along with the National Restaurant Association on our behalf because we don't have those big high-powered lobbyists that, um, that many other industries have. And so um, now is the time for our voices to be heard or they will be silenced forever. Wow. Uh I couldn't agree more. I think I think Elizabeth has articulated that brilliantly. Really, it's uh, the other thing is just you know in New York, uh, about fifty percent of the storefronts, ground floor storefronts in Manhattan, are occupied by restaurants and food service. So wow, of, that much. A lot of and you know people were were noticing in New York that there seemed to be a lot of empty storefronts before all this happened. Um, and sometimes that's just the natural order of things because it's expensive to do business here. But now it's going to really be shocking when you look all around and a lot of places with big names, you know, Thomas Keller's place, he just closed it, uh, uh the back room, uh, and, and Bouchon uh, bakery. And when Thomas Keller closes two restaurants, what does that say for the, for the rest of us? I mean, it's, it's devastating. And, you know, Tracy conversely in Las Vegas, think you've been here. Think of every strip mall that you passed on the way from the strip to, to Honey Salt. There are thousands. And, um, you know, between the, the nail and hair and beauty salons and, and the restaurants and the food service and the markets, mini markets going out, um, it, it's going to be a ghost town. Yeah, it, it's scary. You know, it's funny that the, the I don't want to politicize things, but the day we opened up at Tribeca Grill, we had protesters. We had Trump protesters on the street with big signs. And we had the naked cowboy who is always playing in uh, Times Square. But of course, there's not many people in Times Square. So apparently he's a Trump supporter. So they were all like surrounding the restaurant. And, you know, I, I, I was afraid that it might get a little testy. But fortunately, cooler heads prevailed and it didn't get uh, it didn't get too nasty. But I thought, you know, because of the fact that Robert De Niro has been very outspoken about his opposition to Trump and his policies, uh, they were out there protesting our reopen you know that this and was that was the reason why yeah 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 well don't don't remember don't forget there was that crazy guy a couple of years ago who sent you know these pipe bombs to different places and one of them was directed to to us you know it, it was it was uh downstairs and the you know first male people uh fortunately intercepted it and uh you know this guy is i think he's in prison now but um you know, this is the world we're in now. There's a lot of crazy people, but we had these people surrounding us and uh, they were waving their flags and uh, so on and so forth. Um, I, it, it's astounding to me. It's astounding to me that after all the things that have happened over this last three and a half years, that they see that's a way forward for the country. I just, uh, I, I, that could be a couple of programs. It could be a week of programs where we could dissect every single stupid thing that's happened over the last few years. But um, all I can say is that uh, 
we know the president better than anyone here in New York because the uh, ongoing presence here for many, many years. And, you know, we all have our degrees from Trump University and you know what they're worth. Tracy, you know what's really interesting? You talk very eloquently and passionately and personally about the role that restaurants play in the culture and communities in which they operate and how their places, bastions really, of true hospitality and conviviality. And it seems to me that bullying is the opposite energy of all of the things that the restaurant industry represents and the hospitality industry offers to our communities. That's right. You know, uh, you you know, you listen. You can have a vigorous discussion at a table, and you can have a uh, a different point of view. And I always welcome. I love a good debate. I have a lot of friends who are conservatives, a lot who feel you know, theoretically, they're more comfortable with uh, conservative policies. Yeah. But I, even a lot of them feel that there's a vulgarity that exists now with this president, and that uh, his principles based on his own personal need. Not so much on what he needs, and so it's 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 just a. Uh, but I think vigorous debate in this country. We, we the one thing we have to learn how to do is we have to learn how to talk to each other and not at each other. We have to begin to have a dialogue. Again. I agree, a thousand percent. <laughs> so, so we're really privileged, Michael, and honored to have two of the industry's leading. Um, uh, voices on with us before we say goodbye to each of you and thank you. What's up? So I just found out on the on the newswire that just came through. I'm going to put it up. Simon Properties. We're all familiar with Simon Properties. All the shopping centers all over the country. The the, the uh, CEO David Simon is looking now for opportunities to acquire the retailers that are going bankrupt. They're acquired like Brooks Brothers. So they're putting they're putting in offers to acquire the businesses now, so they'll own them. So Profit, this, profiteering. Wow, like profiteering, right? And and there will be places where that is heralded as, you know, that's what that's what this is all about. That's what capitalism should be about. It should be about the survival of those most advantageously pursuing that. That couldn't be more opposite from what I understand our business is all about. Um, do you have a comment, guys? It's very Darwinian. <laughs> Survival of the fittest. And it's, um, you know, unfortunately, we're going to, to see um, to see a lot of that. And people who didn't um, enter into this pandemic with um, the economic viability to sustain their businesses um are going to fail but the the sad thing it's um our business is hard enough um and this is no fault of any of our um of ours and um it's just really a, a surreal situation um to be facing for so many i like to think that you know in the best world that you do an excellent job you show a good work ethic you put a quality product out, uh, you earn an honest living, uh, that that should be enough to be successful. I never believed in the business world when you see all these buyouts and all these things where people are, you know, selling companies and buying companies and no one ever talks about the quality of what the guest is going to get. Right. Advertising for many years and I, got, I finally got out of it when 
one agency was buying another agency and it wasn't that they were uh, providing better service for the clients necessarily. It was just that people at the top were making a lot of money. A lot of people down the line, you know, you didn't need two creative directors. You didn't need uh, executive account management. So a lot of people lost their jobs and a lot of people at the top. So I don't know. I, I, this has been a good business for us to be in because it's an honest business. It's a true business. We get to meet wonderful people and feed them. Uh, it's something that we've always enjoyed doing. It's a, it's theatrical. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a demanding business, but it's a lovely way to make a living, but it's getting tougher and tougher. And, uh, I think country, you know, whether it's restaurants or anything else, if they buy books, brothers, hopefully they'll make a better product than what they were making before. Right. But if they find a way to cheapen it and just use the name to spread, you know, to make a little more money and that's half-assed and that's pretty sad. One of the things that jumps out, Tracy, in your comments today is the notion that the restaurant business is a dime on a dollar business. But what that really means is that you are so generously sharing and distributing, redistributing all of the other 90 cents of that dollar to everybody else in the community that makes this happen, to your employees, to your servers, to your bussers, to your dishwashers, to the fishermen, the farmers, to all of the people involved, the accountants, everybody involved. Everybody has, a, everybody has a place at the table in the restaurant business. Whereas if you looked at the metrics, from banking, especially big banking, when the recession said we're too big to fail, I guarantee that they were not making a 10% profit on every dollar that they had churning through their system. There were way more, we're retaining that profit than distributing, in other words, sharing that profit. And to me, that's one of the main things that we have to focus on. Yours, ours is a business where we share. It's, it's just, it's a powerful moment in time for us to realize, to ask the question, who we are as a culture, who we are as a community, who we are as people. It's just powerful not to notice that we're sharing or we're being greedy. That is just a powerful idea right now. That yeah, is. I think you're, you're, I think you're exactly right. I think you're exactly right. The way we get back uh, as a country is when we start respecting each other and we all work hard and honestly do the best for each other, whether you're a dry cleaner or a lo local grocery store, you're doing the best work you can for your, your fellow citizens and your neighborhoods and you're showing kindness to people. And, uh, you know, it's always good. The American people have always been very generous in terms of charities and everything. But, you know, now when you have very little money, uh, it's hard to be charitable. You have to kind of put food on your own plate and in, serve your own family. But when we get back to a kinder, gentler tone, I think that uh, we can start to make progress again. And uh, it's not just the government, it's each of us, you know, we have to be better people. And we have to do really good work and we have to make sure we make people happy and we don't, we're not taking advantage of anybody, you know, honestly, you know, that's the, that's, that's the bottom line. Elizabeth Blau, we're gonna give you the last word on this. I, you know, I can't agree more. Um, some good old fashioned honesty and, and kindness. Um, you know, we're a culture that perseveres. We're an industry that, that perseveres. We are the first people 
in the restaurant business that every charity comes to for, for support, whether it's a gift card or a dinner or a chef meal. Um, so we're the first out there to, to support others. Um, and we need um, our federal government, our state government, and we need support from the community for all of our local restaurants, all of our independent restaurants to survive. So please help us. One of the things I want to say is thank you to all of you for the work that you do and the leadership you bring to the industry, your national voices, your local and your own communities, but you do so much nationally for all of us too. Michael, I got to tell you, this is one of my favorite shows we've ever done. I hate the circumstances under which we had to do it, but I love that the idea that this is a reset of and recalibration of reminding us and recommitting to who we are as an industry. Uh, this is who we are. No, we appreciate you guys coming on. I've been spending the last hour watching you guys. Yeah. And watching this. <laughs> Hi, Jeff. <laughs> because we're doing this. This is this is who we do it for. We do it for the future. That's right. That's right. That's the future. All right. Thank you, guys. Bye. Be Elizabeth well. Blau. Thank yeah. you. That was beautiful, wasn't it? But Powerful. It, but it, Powerful. Powerful. Very powerful. Listen, um, can you? All right. So, so Jet, M Michael, here's Jet, the idea. Here. What yeah. if, hello, what if we gather together all of these uh, coalitions of restaurateurs and we, and we compete with Mr. Simon? What if we gathered stone soup style, all of our resources, you have a dime, I have a dime. If every restaurateur, if every dining patron that has a dime put their dime in the kitty and they said, Mr. Simon, we are not going to let you personally profit and exploit this moment in time and put the restaurants out of business that support our charities, that support our little league teams and our Boy Scouts and our Girl Scouts and our, and our charitable efforts in every community. We're not going to let you take this away. What if we found a way to do something where we put our dimes in our own collective restaurant piggy bank and said, Mr. Simon, you're not going to get away with what you think you're going to get away with because the market will be defined differently than you expect it to be. You are not the only one with enough monopoly money to make this work. Somebody out there is going to come and help us make this happen so that it's not quite the um, gouging um, and and wholesale termination of the restaurant business that you think it might be. And I put that out there. Let's get our dimes together, boys and girls. Thank you, Jennifer. Say bye-bye to Auntie Jen. Hug your kids and hug your kids and count your blessings. Bye-bye. Whether you are thinking about becoming a restaurateur or you are already in the business, Michael Pulitz has written a must-read the Food and Beverage Magazine's Guide to Restaurant Success. Pick up your copy today at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Books A Million, or wherever fine books are sold.